Uh, making progress, new sermon series over the course of the next six weeks. How do you make progress? One step at a time. I was hoping for that response. Uh, progress comes from a Latin term meaning forward step. Pro, forward, gress, step. One step at a time. That's how you make progress. So in light of taking just one step at a time, we're launching this new campaign. It's called the One Name Campaign. Uh, we introduced it in the newsletter. We're going to be fleshing it out over the course of the next six weeks in connection with this sermon series. So I'm not going to give all of it to you today. I'm just introducing it. It can be a little bit overwhelming when we talk about evangelizing the whole world, can it? Like, let's, let's reach our whole community for Christ. Well, that's great. That's awesome. Uh, that's what we're here for. But where do we start, right? What, what can I do today? So that's the reason for this campaign. Let's choose just one name, just one person. What if we all chose just one name to pray for, to connect with, to serve, to share the gospel with? What if we all just picked one name? How could that take shape? How could that catch fire? Just one name. So today, all I want you to do, we're going to be seeing more on social media, in the newsletter. Next Sunday, we'll talk about it more, the one name campaign. But all I want you to do today is just be thinking about who's that one person in your circle of influence who needs to hear the message of the cross of Jesus Christ through you. One name campaign. All right, making progress. We're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. The first six chapters, uh, Steve actually got me up here one minute early. Don't, don't give a preacher extra time. That's, that's dangerous. Six chapters, here we go. Uh, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. He founded the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Last week, Paul ta Steve talked about Paul's first missionary journey, where he went up to Pamphylia from Antioch. Well, this is his second missionary journey. He's traveling all the way up. I think he goes north this way and then comes down from Amphipolis, Thessalonica, Berea, all the way down to Athens. And then Corinth is right here. I know it's super small and you probably can't see it. Maybe at home it's a little bigger on your screen. Uh, I want to say hi to all those participating at home. I'm glad you're here. This is Paul's second missionary journey. When he arrives in Corinth, he spends the second longest amount of time in any city on his missionary journey that he ever did, second only to Ephesus. He spends 18 months in Corinth, a year and a half. That's a big investment, isn't it? Corinth is a city on the sea. Actually, it has two shores because it's this narrow isthmus of land that connects the southern portion of Greece and the northern portion. That's the city of Corinth. Now, Paul spends 18 months there setting up this church uh, he moves on to another area just like he typically did. He probably wrote them a letter, and this is actually the second letter to the church in Corinth, because he hears word from Chloe's house that the church isn't doing well. It's divided. It's fractured. It's polarized. They're getting bent out of shape over all sorts of different issues. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians as a corrective letter to correct some of their behavior and some of their wrong thinking. How'd you like to receive a letter like that from Paul, the, the founder of the church, the fa their father in the faith? But Paul goes about it so well. He starts out in 1 Corinthians 
by telling them what he's thankful for about them. Let me, let me give you a little advice here. If you have something hard to say to somebody, you better start with something nice, something you're thankful for. Season it with grace. Surround the truth in love, right? Did your mama ever say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> well, he starts out and he says of the church in Corinth, you're enriched, you're confirmed, you're not lacking. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You're sustained, you're guiltless, you're called. Those are all nice things that Paul is calling out of the church. Because of that, I give thanks for you, thankful for you. I'm, I'm still working on this, but if you're frustrated with somebody, with a fellow believer, and you feel compelled, led by the Holy Spirit, to have a conversation with them, if when you look at that person, all you can see is negative, 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 and you can't see any positive in them, you need to deal with the heart issue before you challenge your brother or sister in Christ. I think that's what I'm going to be working on for the rest of my life. Let's get into it. Before I do, let me give you the bottom line. All right? Spoiler alert. This, this, is, this is the bottom line for today. In order to step forward, we need to step together. In order to step forward, we need to step together. Anybody's kids watch Rescue Heroes back in the day? Nobody gets left behind, right? In order to make progress as a church, unity is so important. If we're going to step forward, we need to step together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is verse 10. It says, I appeal, appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There is so much in our world today that divides us, isn't there? There are so many polarizing topics. Like anybody have a conversation recently where you thought, should I bring this up or should I not? Like, think about it. You got COVID restrictions. Do we talk about masks? Do we not? You got politics. Do I mention Donald Trump's name or do I not? Uh, you've got, I wrote down some of them here. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, social justice, vaccines, gender equality. Are these subjects that we bring up? I don't know what the other person thinks. It's going it's to end the conversation right here. There is so much that we divide over. So what, what can we unite in? What does unity look like? Does unity look like we all agree in everything? That no matter what topic comes up, it's just, well, what do you think? Well, that's what I think. Yeah, uh-huh. And we're all yes men and we just nod? No, that's unanimity. Does it mean that uh, there's no divisions in the sense that we all look the same, we all talk the same, we all act the same, we all live the same? No, that's uniformity. And to my knowledge, we're not getting uniforms here anytime soon. I think I'll stand against that if that ever comes up. We're not going to be wearing uniforms. It's not uniformity. It's not unanimity. Unity. What does it mean to be united? Well, the Greek term that Paul uses here for being united is katartizo. How, does that mean a lot to you? It's not about cats. Katartizo. It means to mend a tear. You ever rip your jeans and you get your grandma to sew them back together? That's the picture of unity that he's talking about. When he says don't be divided, that's the Greek word schismo, a schism. 
a rip, a tear. To be united is to bring back the pieces that were formerly together, but have separated, have torn, and mend them back together. How do you do that? Well, he says, be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Well, what's the mind? It's, it's the cognitive reasoning, it's the perspective, it's the view, it's the vision. And what is, what is judgment? Well, it's a decree. It's a purpose. It's a statement. Your vision, your purpose. So what are, what are we be, to be united in? We're to be united in our vision and our values. Our mission and our core values. So what are those? As Faith Baptist Church, we believe we are called to be disciples making disciples. And our core values are truth, community, and engagement. And all those things look really pretty written down on a piece of paper or on a plaque. We should definitely get one for our lobby as people come in. But what does that actually mean? Well, it means we're to be people who know Jesus, who love Jesus, who serve Jesus, who discuss, talk about, proclaim truth, who live in community, authentic relationships and accountability, and who engage in the mission, serve, get involved, take part. That's what it means to be united in a mission and in core values. I looked up on our website, our membership statement. We were talking with some pastors on Thursday about membership and it really sparked this whole thinking. If you go on our website, sharethejourney.ca, and you find the tab that talks about membership, this is stated right in our membership statement. I think maybe Steve wrote this. I'm not sure on that. Faith Baptist membership statement. Functional church membership consists of the relationships we have with one another in Christ as his followers for life and for mission. And then look at this. Being on mission together involves cooperation. Working together, stepping together, unity. Unity is a big deal when we talk about making progress as a church. You ready to get into some points? I got five of them. Here's number one, playing favorites. You want to know what will divide a church? Something immature as playing favorites. Playing favorites. Let's dig into 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. Paul says, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Now, I don't know if Chloe's a man or a woman, but they were there in the church in Corinth. I wonder if Chloe was like, Paul, why you got to wrap me out like that? I don't know. Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter, or I follow Christ. Let's talk about this for a moment. These are fan clubs within the church. Four groups within the church of Corinth. Well, we're Paul's fan club. Because, I mean, Paul is our father in the faith. He's the one who was here. He spent 18 months. Chloe, you remember, he came to your house, knocked on the door. He led you and your household to the Lord. Now you're part of this church. I mean, we are Paul followers until the day that we die. Or how about Apollos? He's the guy from Alexandria who Paul led to the Lord, who followed Paul's ministry into the church in Corinth. He was educated. He was a philosopher. He was an orator. He used big vocabulary. Some people believe that he was the one who wrote the book of Hebrews, which is very deep, classic Greek. I mean, Paul, you started the church strong, but Apollos, man, he's taken us to another level intellectually. 
And then Cephas, that's Peter, the Apostle Peter. You know what? You guys can follow Paul. You guys can follow Apollos. But Peter, he's a man's man. He's a fisherman. He's practical, hands dirty. He's got dirt under nails, salt of the earth, kind of relatable person that I can just connect with. That's the guy that I'm going to follow. And then you got this fourth group, which I always kind of thought they were the ones who were in the right, right? They followed Christ. You know, forget these other guys. Christ is who's most important. And I get that. On a surface level, it looks right. But a lot of commentators pointed out that this may have been the most snootiest of divisions in the church. Oh, you, you follow Paul, and you follow Apollos, and you follow Peter. Well, we don't follow mere man. We're not going to submit to anybody just Christ. We're not going to submit to authorities. We don't need leaders. We don't need any of this because we only follow Christ. Do you get what I'm saying? You got all these divisions in the church. Isn't that immature? Here's what it sounds like today. I like this pastor because they're more funny. I like this deacon because they get things done, the things that I want done. I like this journey kids leader because they just have so much energy. I like this musician because they play my style of music. I'm not going to that life group anymore because I wasn't a fan of the way that they... And it divides the church. You know what happened? They took purpose and they flipped it with preference. And they started choosing and serving and following based on what they liked. And these divisions, these, these schisms in the church. Look at what Paul says. Uh, in chapter 3, he says, you're being immature. You're still drinking milk. You're still on the elementary things. You haven't grown up. You're still fighting over trivial matters. You ever work with your kids or somebody's kids or you're helping in journey kids and it's like, if you guys keep fighting over this, nobody gets to play. Nobody gets to enjoy the, the, the toy. Like, let's move on from this. It's so immature. But we can't get over our little preferences. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. We're going to jump around because this is more of an overview. We can't go through every verse in six chapters. Unless you want to. Chapter 4 and verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself. This is Paul speaking. And Apollos. For your benefit, brothers. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what, what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. It's a pride thing, isn't it? What I want is more important than what you want. But the truth is, what we want isn't as important as what God wants according to Scripture. Have you been in a conversation lately? I hope you've had conversations like this, either with yourself or with a trusted brother or sister in Christ, where they say, is that really what the Bible says? Does the Bible really say that? Like, really, you're going to follow this person because you like, where does it say that in the Bible? Paul says, be careful not to go beyond what is written. Don't add to Scripture. Don't add. The Bible's very clear on what a leader in the church looks like, and we're going to be talking about that in a few weeks in this series. Don't add your personal preference to what it should look like. Choosing a church based on the style or by the age or by the music it's wrong. It's a very immature and shallow approach. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 13. Is Christ divided? Of course he's not divided. The Trinity is one. We believe in one God. Was Paul crucified for you? 
Or were you baptized in the same, in the name of Paul? Think about this. I love the way Paul puts this out. Why are you following me? I'm just God's tool. I'm just God's worker. Anything that's been accomplished in the church in Corinth is through him because of his message. God does it. God saves. God forgives. God restores. God gives new life. Paul's just the conduit through which he does it. I brought a few illustrations thinking maybe this would connect with you. Um, This is Tiger Woods golf ball. (laughs) Of course it's not. But just imagine if it was, right? It'd be worth a little more than this one that I found in our backyard. What if I were to take this golf ball and say, you know what, wow, this golf ball, right? Incredible, worth so much money. Think of how many PGA tours this golf ball has won. As if Tiger Woods uses the same golf ball. I don't know, maybe he's superstitious like that. But just think, do you remember when this golf ball rolled across the grass, and this isn't a Nike, but it showed that Nike symbol, and then it just fell into the hole, like, wow, this is an incredible golf ball. This golf ball must be the best golf, well, it's not about the golf ball, right? It's about the person who hit it with his driver, who's Tiger Woods. You don't praise the golf ball because it was hit by Tiger Woods. You praise Tiger Woods for his skill and ability and experience. It's not about the golf ball. It's not about the golf club. They're just equipment that are useless unless they're in the hands of Tiger Woods. Paul's saying the same thing. It's not me who accomplished it. I just allowed God to use me. It's not about the golf ball. Look at this. Chapter 3 and verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Anybody getting their gardens ready? Springtime? Today's going to be a great day for growing plants. Can you like stand there and just like will a seed to grow? It's like watching a pot boil, right? It doesn't happen because you're, you can't do anything about it. You can water, you can plant, you can add some fertilizer, but you got to let the sun and the air and everything do the rest. God gives the increase. Look at 1 Corinthians. Well, let's move on. Point number two, we got to get rolling. Cross over or cross out. Cross over or cross out. Look at verse 18 of chapter one. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, how can the same object be foolishness to one group, absolute insanity, but then to another group be the very life-giving power? How does that work? The cross is foolishness. The cross is power. Did you know that the only division that truly matters is the cross of Jesus Christ? The only division that truly matters at the end of the day, at the end of the age, when we stand in judgment, is the cross of Christ. It's not necessarily race. It's not necessarily social economic status. It's not necessarily your gender, your political view, your denomination. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that is most important at the end of the day. And that's where mankind divides. Now, when I say the cross, I'm not talking about two pieces of wood and some nails. Paul's talking about the whole message of the gospel. That God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son. Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross, an innocent death, to pay for your sin and for mine. 
And if we receive that message through faith, then we can have forgiveness. And as Jesus rose from the dead, we are given new life. We're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's talking about the whole message. Now, how does the cross divide? Well, humanity has two options. You can receive the free gift of the cross, or you can reject it. It is truly the most important dividing line in humanity, the cross of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, the cross is also the most powerful message of unity for those who have received it through faith. Not only does it divide humanity, but it unites us as a church. We're united on the foundation of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where true and deep and lasting unity is found. Look at what Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 1. He said, When I came to you in Corinth, and I spent that year and a half, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, Paul could have come in with signs and wonders and won over the Jews because that's what the Jews wanted to see. Paul could have come in with philosophy and oratory and lofty speech and wisdom to gain the Greeks because that's what the Greeks wanted. But Paul said, you know what? I'm not going to win you with what you want. I'm not going to put on a big party and then have to keep doing that because that's the depth of our unity and connection. I'm going to focus on the message that really matters, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where true and lasting unity, connection, community, fellowship, where it really happens, is the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's all about the cross. Third point, built together. Built together. Uh, I had my daughter help me with this. I don't know if anybody likes Lego. Right? Pretty incredible. Uh, so I did the main structure. She added the flowers. <laughs> and she added the chimney, right? Nice little building built together. All right, verse 9 of chapter 3. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul's saying, look, it's not about us. God accomplishes the work. God gives the increase. God gives the growth. We're just his fellow workers. But you are God's field. We're the ones who are to be growing. Then he says, you are God's building. Now in this season, I feel like we've, we've pushed this message over and over again. I hear it time and time again. The church is not a building. Just because the building is closed doesn't mean the church is closed, right? The church is a body of believers in community over the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the church. The church in Corinth probably didn't have their own building. It's probably a group of people who met, I don't know where they met, in homes, but they probably didn't have their own building initially. He says, you are God's building. We are God's building. There are so many pictures that are given for the church. We are God's building. The church is a building, and we are that building, and we're to be built together. Um. Have you ever seen those videos, I don't know, South America or wherever, where they have those mudslides, you know, torrential rains, and then the hillside just becomes a mudslide, and then it goes around all these homes. And as long as the foundation stays secure, 
the house is fine. But as soon as that foundation lets go, you can, you can kind of see it teetering on the edge, right? As soon as that foundation lets go, the house crumbles like a deck of cards. Paul says, when I came, it wasn't lofty speech or wisdom, it was the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. That's the element for unity. Now, we can connect these Lego bricks together all we want, but if they're not on a sure foundation, it's going to crumble. If we're not united in the right thing, it's going to crumble. The foundation is so important. It's the most important aspect of any building. Look at chapter 3 and verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, the cross of Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, kind of sounds like the three little pigs and the big bad wolf there for a second, doesn't it? That's a different story. This isn't a fairy tale. Verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, this is a big picture day of judgment, the work. But, but look at this. The implication is that each one of us is to be working, aren't we? The implication is each one's work. Work each one has done. You can't leave it to the paid staff, can't leave it to the deacons, can't leave it to the band, can't leave it to the tech team, can't leave it to your life group leader. Each one of us is called to work and to play our part. You know what I love about this imagery of the building? Especially with Lego bricks. You'll find out as a parent that that Lego that your parents bought you when you were a kid was expensive. What an investment. You start looking for your kids and it's like a hundred pieces to make a little bicycle is like $25. Come on. So you end up buying these bulk packs. This is called Lego Duplo. Um, I don't get paid to advertise this, just so you know. But I, I'm open for it. You'll find out you can get these bulk packs, and it's just like the rectangular bricks, and they all look the same, but they're different colors. So you start with that, because it gets the kids started with a bunch of bricks. But you can only go so far with that, because each of the bricks are the same. And you can only put them together in so many random configurations. But it always ends up looking the same, because everyone's the same size, the same amount of connecting blocks. Like, you can't get any shape, you can't get any creativity. What I love about this picture that Paul uses is that all the pieces in the church, God's building, each one of us is different, aren't we? In, when you get to chapter 12, he talks about how each one of us has gifts, differing gifts, but the same spirit, and each of the gifts are to be used for the building up of the whole. We all have different gifts, and we're all to be working. And then in chapter 12, he continues on and he starts talking about uh, the church as a body and how the hand should not say to the foot or the foot should not say to the eye that because I'm not an eye, I'm going to remove myself from the body because I'm not important because I'm different than that member of the body of the church. Well, each one of us is different, but when we come together, there's so much more opportunity for creativity and diversity and seeing God's glory played out in a united structure, a united body coming together and playing each of our roles. I like the picture. Built together. Verse 16, chapter 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple? This isn't just some building that we kind of 
play with for the sake of trying to make it look cool. And it houses God's presence. The Bible says when, where two or three are gathered. The Bible also says that each one of us individually is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You've seen the picture in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the tent, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence moving with the people in the tabernacle. And then you see Solomon's temple, and you see the temple continue through the Old Testament where God's presence dwelt behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, that veil tore in two. From top to bottom, God created the opportunity for unity with his presence. And now when each of us receives the message of the cross by faith, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit because we are the temple that houses the Spirit of God. When we come together and the Holy Spirit manifests and each one of us comes together as the assembly, the church, the ecclesia built together, housing God's presence. I love the picture. In order to step together so that we can step forward, all the parts of the body need to be serving and functioning together. All the parts of the building need to be rooted and founded. Just like the wise man dug down deep and built his house on the rock, we need to be built on the foundation of the message of the cross of Christ. What a shame it would be if we translated this as the physical facility. You know, and we made sure this, this building looked good, the paint was good, the carpet was good, it functioned well. But then the actual building, the church body, the church building, the temple of the Holy Spirit was crumbling under the load, dividing under the weight. That would be no testimony at all. Point number four. Remove to restore. You know, sometimes I've found in building these things with my kids, they put a terrible piece on the bottom and try and build on top of it, right? And it just doesn't work. And for the sake of the structural integrity of the whole thing, you have to remove that piece, get it back in its rightful spot in connection and fellowship with the other pieces. Remove to restore. Sometimes for the sake of unity and mission, a member of the church must be removed in order to be restored. Paul ends up having to have a really awkward conversation with the church in Corinth in chapter 4. Sorry, chapter 5. And he's got to deal with sin that they are so arrogant and prideful as to think that they can just tolerate and put up with, and maybe if we ignore it, it'll go away. Nobody's spoken up about this. Paul says, there's a man in your church who's sleeping with his stepmom. I don't know how to make that sound appropriate because it's not appropriate. He says, even in Corinth, the place where the temple of Aphrodite is and all the prostitutes would come down and prostitution was big in Corinth, you have all these sailors coming back and forth across. It's Even in the community, they wouldn't accept this sort of thing, let alone tolerating it in the church. So he speaks up about it. Here's what he says in verse 4 of chapter 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, even though Paul wasn't there physically, he was still present in spirit. I like that picture. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
How's that for some strong language right there? Wouldn't you like to preach this verse? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Deliver this man so that his spirit may be saved. Remove this man so that he may be restored. Now, without getting too deep into this imagery, because we could dig in pretty deep, the whole point of removing this guy was so that he could be restored into his proper place in God's building, in the body, the local body, the church. Now, wait just a second. I thought the church was the most forgiving, accepting, grace-filled place on earth, place for everybody to come. I mean, remember when Jesus told the story, leaving the 99 righteous ones, going to find the one that was lost, carrying it back on his shoulders? Why would you ever remove somebody from the church so that they can be restored? It's for their good, for the good of the church, and for the glory of God. Let me put it this way. Let's say you're skiing at Wentworth this past winter. Anybody go to Wentworth this past winter? It was kind of a short season, a couple good, good streaks there. You're skiing down Headwall, and you collide with a tree. You break your leg. It's not just a bruise, not just a scrape. It is broken. It's severed. It is bad. Now, as I see it, you've got two options. You call ski patrol, and they come with their little orange stretcher behind the snowmobile. They bring you down. They give you a drive to the hospital. You get an x-ray. Maybe you need surgery. You get a cast on. And then for the summer, you can't swim. You can't bike. You can't hike. You can't get a bath. You got to wrap a plastic bag with duct tape before you get a shower. Anybody have a cast on their leg? Crutches? Like, come on. That's option one. Option number two, you grit your teeth and you ignore it. Right? You just get up and you, you just put that leg where it's supposed to go and you ski down the hill. That was a good day. And then for the rest of your life, you're doing this weird limp and you're trying to keep the swelling down and keep ice on it, hoping that infection and gangrene and whatever doesn't set in. You have to lose your leg and you live your life disjointed and in a mess and in a bunch of pain because you weren't willing to deal with the issue. Do you see the picture? I mean, when the light comes on in the dash of your car, you eventually go to the shop or buy the parts and get it fixed. When the shingles blow off your roof, you don't wait for the torrential downpour to run through your ceiling before you say, we should fix those shingles. You get up there and you take care of it. You maintain the relationship that the shingle has with the underlay, right? You deal with the issue. In verse 7 of chapter 5, Paul gives us a really practical way to consistently deal with this issue before it gets to that point, before you have to remove somebody in order to restore them. Because who wants to do that? This was verse 7 of chapter 5. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. You ever been called a lump? <laughs> or a lump. As you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You ever forget the yeast in your bread and you bake it and it comes out like a brick and it's not really edible? That yeast makes all the difference. I don't bake bread. Maybe that doesn't happen. Does it happen? I don't know. 
The leaven refers to yeast. And it's a picture throughout the Bible, throughout Jewish tradition, of sin. Jesus uses this picture. That little bit of yeast that you put in is so powerful. It affects and changes the whole thing. Just like a broken bone affects the whole body. That little bit of yeast, that little bit of sin, if you let it continue and grow and take hinge and develop and become a habit and become an addiction and a hang-up. So he says, remove the old leaven. Well, when do you do that? How do you do that? Well, he talks about Passover. He talks about Jesus as our Passover lamb, and he talks about the Passover festival and every time you celebrate it. Well, in the age of the church, now that we look back at the cross and we embrace the message of the cross, this becomes the Lord's table, communion, where we remember the Passover lamb whose broken body and shed blood was given for us. And as we consistently partake in the Lord's table as a body assembled together, we get this opportunity to say, wow, this is what Jesus did for me. And it's like a mirror we look into. And it's an opportunity for us to confess our sin and get our fellowship right with God. Our relationship with God never changes. Ephesians says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you've received the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, nothing can separate you. No man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. So our relationship never changes. But how many people know that in your marriage relationship, there might be days where the fellowship kind of changes, where it might feel a little more cold, you know, a little bit of sandpaper rubbing in there. Your relationship doesn't change, but the fellowship, the connection, the intimacy, that's what changes. Paul says every time you observe communion, the Lord's table, the Passover festival, confess, get right with God. Take out that old leaven that God has freed you from and forgiven you of and embrace that new life in Christ consistently. All right, final point. Are we there? Drop the charges. Drop the charges. Chapter 6 and verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? I would have said this was an outlandish example, except for the fact that in the last number of years, I've seen this in churches that I'm connected to. Church members suing church members. Church people having lawsuits against their former church. And I don't know all the details, and I don't want to get into all of them, and I don't... Why do we have to fight each other to this point? Why do we let it go that far? Why do we let the root of bitterness take hold? Dragging them to court, and Paul has to tell them, this isn't a good testimony in the community, guys. This really isn't. Let's jump to verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You've already lost. Who cares if you win the lawsuit? Who cares if you get some money? Who cares if you get some justice from the legal system? You've already lost. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather defraud? I think Jesus said it, turn the other cheek. I think Jesus said it, give him the coat off your back also. Why would we go to the court system. Do you, do you think that judge or that jury or the people who read about it in the newspaper are going to say, wow, Faith Baptist Church, I think I'll attend there on Sunday. See what it's all about. Have you ever been to a dinner party? You remember back 
before 2020, we used to have dinner parties. We used to get invited over to people's houses, you know. So you show up to somebody's house, you got the directions right, it's your first time there, you knock on the door, they greet you, and you can already notice the tension. You ever been in that situation? The husband's not really making eye contact with the wife and kind of ignoring her, so she starts giving some snarky comments, and then it's just all-out argument back and forth, and your guests in their home. It's like, uh, let me ask you, did you enjoy that meal? Do you even remember what you ate? How was the conversation? You just couldn't wait to get back in the car and get out of there. Who would want to visit a church where we so fight with one another, drag each other to court, lawsuits? If you do this, I'm gonna, I'm, you're going to hear from my lawyer. Where's the grace? Where's the forgiveness? Where's the unity? Well, there's not. In John chapter 17, this is called Jesus' high priestly prayer, and I end with this. The night that he was betrayed in the garden before he was arrested, he's praying, and he's praying for us. He's praying for his disciples, his followers, and then he says, for those who will come after, for those who will hear the word and believe. He's talking about us. He's talking about the church. And he could have prayed anything that night for the church. You know what he prayed for? He said that they may all be one. That we would be unified. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The Trinity is one. That they also may be in us. So that, here's the reason why. The world may believe that you have sent me. When we talk about making progress as a church, when we talk about something like the One Name Campaign, when we talk about evangelism, when we talk about the Great Commission that we've been digging into in the start of the book of Acts, unity is so important. Like, what better topic to start on? If we're going to move forward as a church, we need to be united in the same mission and the same values so that the world may believe. I think that's where evangelism starts. I think that's where making progress as a church starts. I think that's where the one name campaign starts. That we would be so unified that when the world looked at us and the love we have for one another and the grace and the forgiveness and the community that we embrace as Faith Baptist Church, they would say, wow, something's different there. I've been looking for relationships like that. I've been looking for a family like that. I've been looking for a community like that. I've been looking for grace and acceptance and forgiveness and truth like that. May we be a united church. Let me end in a word of prayer. Father God, I want to praise you today for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the mission that you've called us to that we can be united under. God, I pray that we would be disciples making disciples, that we would so follow you and love you and embrace you and know you and serve you that that would flow into the lives of other people, that they would learn to love you and know you and serve you. Jesus, thank you that it's all about your cross this morning. Thank you that you are the Passover lamb who died for us. God, I pray that we wouldn't play favorites. Pray that we would drop the charges. Pray that we would cross over instead of crossing out. God, would you help us to be built together? Build your church, Father. Thank you that you promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thank you for who you are to us today for your son, Jesus Christ, for the power of the spirit. God, we thank you for the love that you've extended to us. 
If there are any here who have not received that truth and that message, they've been rejecting the cross, turning their back on it, avoiding the conversation. God, I pray that they would make that decision today to receive the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for participating in our online service today. If you haven't yet filled out the Connect card, would you take a moment to do so? Make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel. While you're there, you can check out all of the video content that we've recorded over the years. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook page. And while you're on Facebook or YouTube, make sure to hit that notification bell. That way you will not miss a video. It'll send a notification to your phone, to your email. For all other information, you can go to our website, sharethejourney.ca. I really hope that you are encouraged to be a disciple making disciples this week.